Novel Pairings, a podcast dedicated to making the classics readable, relevant, and fun. In every episode, we'll bring our big English teacher energy, discussing the modern literary landscape in context with the classics. Along the way, we'll talk about the books we love and the books we loathe, and help stock your TBR pile with old and new reads for every literary taste. Today, we're talking... Oh, I'm looking at the wrong outline. <laughs> Today, we're discussing Rebecca by Daphne du Maurier. Hi, Chelsea. Hey, Sarah. I think this is one of our most requested books. Yeah, which is kind of wild. Yeah, you I think don't know so? If I, would have guessed, I don't know if I would have guessed that when we first started the podcast that everybody would want to read Rebecca. I... I agree. I mean, okay, well, we should dive right in, I think, <laughs> to our initial experiences with this book because that might help explain or at least ask the question of why is this book popular? Is it how, how does it fit in the world of classics in the way we have kind of described them? What's your what's your history with this book? I'm trying to remember when I first read it and picked it up. I think it was mostly because I was really attracted to the um, Virago Classics Edition um, that's super pretty. I'm holding it up for Sarah to see right now. It is pretty. And I I mean, I've read it a couple times since. I think this was my third or fourth time reading it. And I definitely never read it for school or studied it or anything. I just picked it up on my own. And I think that's how a lot of people come to this text is it's one of those classics that has such pop culture value and such appeal just to readers in general. And so many people describe it as like, well, it's a classic that doesn't read like a classic. So just pick it up and read it um, if you like suspense and thriller. So yeah, I don't know. I I love it. I think it's amazing. I think it deserves to have more of a place in sort of scholarly conversation, but I just don't think that's where it generally fits in. Well, maybe that's why we have gotten so many requests because I think there is something about stumbling upon a classic on your own and falling in love with it rather than being told this is important. And finding a book in those two different ways leads to two very different reading experiences. But at the same time, maybe maybe some readers, and I kind of feel this way, feeling like, well, I love reading this for the joy of it and for the pleasure, but I think it's worthy of a little bit more of a deep dive, and I'd like to explore it in that way too. So yeah, maybe, maybe, that's, maybe those are some of the reasons why we get requests for Rebecca. What's your history with it? I, I vividly remember the first time I read it. Um, it was during grad school. And the fact that I like made time to read this <laughs> during grad school says a lot. But one of my friends, um, not a grad school friend, but a friend from undergrad who lived in D.C. while I was there, Jenna, she was actually, she's a poet, an incredible poet. And she recommended this book to me. And she had just read it. It had been sitting on her shelves forever. She had the old mass market paperback with the like big swooping R. Mm-hmm. And she said, she said, okay, I'm going to give you this book. She said, don't judge it by its cover. She had been putting it off and putting it off because 
it just looked like whatever. And I, I don't remember why she ended up picking it up, but I implicitly trusted her recommendation. And I think I read it in just a couple of sittings. I was enthralled. I didn't know anything about it. I kind of quickly picked up on some of the Jane Eyre associations, but I didn't go into it thinking this is a commentary or a reworking of Jane Eyre or anything like that. I just read it. And I mean, the I was blown. I remember being completely blown away by the multiple twists, just like literally gasping as we got to some of these twists. And this is an episode where we're going to talk about spoilers, but we'll give you ample warning before we talk about that ending. Yeah. Uh, I think there's something really special about reading a classic just for the sake of reading a great book. And I think that that makes for such a good rereading experience. I, I really just picked this up to read it and have fun with it. Really similar experience that you had where it was like, oh my goodness, this is amazing and such a page turner. And then um, I actually listened to the audiobook to prep for this episode. But because of all the conversations that we've been having about modernism and postmodernism and narration and because of just all of the public scholarship that we've been doing, I had such a different reading experience. And I'm so glad to have had both types. And I hope that a lot of our listeners get to have that with this book featured on the podcast as well. Yeah, I um I I completely agree. I think that's probably how a lot of people have come to this book and I it makes me sad that that's not how I've gotten to read a lot of classics. Like like I I wish I had read Pride and Prejudice and not known how it ends. And I wish I had read Jane Eyre and not known what was in the attic. Like I, I think we would appreciate and fall in love with so many more books if we got to have that experience. Like you said, it's the great like doubling of the experience or multiplying of the experience to have that and then get to go back in like we're about to do and study it closely. But man, I wish I could erase some (laughs) literary knowledge from my brain and then go into these classics <laughs> with a clear headspace. <laughs> such a, a classic reader conundrum. I wish I could erase <laughs> this book and read it again for the first time. So, Sarah, on this reread, what is something in particular that just stood out to you all the more for reading Rebecca this time? Well, the what you put in the notes was exactly <laughs> what well, let's I... let's talk about it. Okay, well, I'll, I'll say one more thing first before we get to that because I don't really have all that much to say about this. Um, but I was reading it with the mindset of why is this so enduring and what makes this like a suspense novel that you want to reread because some suspense novels, it's like once you know the twist, the pleasure is gone. Um, and I think that what she does so well is tells a fantastically layered story that's just a good story. It's not an allegory, but the fears, the suspense, the anxieties are can all stand in for common anxieties, probably for 
people in general, but maybe particularly for women. Like the anxiety of like being in a relationship where your partner has so much more power than you do and how you navigate that. The the like jealousies of thinking about a partner's previous loves and and how you stack up. Like I just think some of those things are so relatable even if you read it in maybe a more mature headspace and you're like, "Oh, this this girl, like get it together, girl." <laughs> it doesn't, you know, but but I think you can still relate. Many readers can still relate to that feeling of being like lost in that that way, being in a romantic situation where you think like, I like this person way more than they like me. <laughs> and to take those feelings and turn them into something actually like haunting and scary, that sticks with you for sure. It's also just beautifully written. Mm-hmm. Like I don't, I, I can't think of very many suspense novels that I've read where I'm like, that's a gorgeous description. That's such a perfect turn of phrase. And I think that like many classic novels, people just like being in the world of Manderley here. Even though it's spooky, even though it's a gothic, even though there's something off about it, it's still a beautiful, magical fairy tale place. Right. We get to spend way more time in Manderley than we do in Pemberley, right? So it's it's like getting to explore those halls and that life in a in a much more detailed way. And because our narrator is new to that world, she's describing things for us in a way that a narrator who was comfortable in that world or just used to it wouldn't notice. And so she is our avatar where we feel a little like we don't belong, but we're really excited to snoop around. So speaking of her not belonging at Manderley, our unnamed narrator is from a significantly lower class than this new world that she inhabits. So Maxim de Winter is wealthy and his family has owned Manderley for probably centuries and especially when she describes him as belonging in like a Renaissance painting mm-hmm. and just saying he has that old look about him, that just speaks to the old, 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 old money that he has. And so when she steps into Manderley, she's also just stepping into this wealthy, wealthy world of the British upper crust and truly does not belong. And it's not just because she's young. It's not just because she's not Rebecca. It's because she's working class. She was working as a companion. We don't know a lot about her history. Um, That dynamic stood out to me so much more on this reading. I'm not exactly sure why, especially because like I was listening to it on audio. So I was kind of expecting more of the atmosphere to stand out to me. I didn't expect all of the class commentary to really leap out, but it totally did. There's so much social class commentary going on here. Yes, that is exactly what stood out to me more on this read as well. And like you said, I don't, I'm not sure why, like I've even taught this novel and I think for sure touched on those questions, but I think always thought more about the gender, which is 
certainly important here, but it's all interconnected, um, right? Intersectionality very much at, at play here. Yeah. All of the scenes, I think especially like the, maybe the more, maybe the less prominent scenes, even like where she's talking to Beatrice and it's so clear how they're just operating from two completely different worldviews and spheres of understanding where Beatrice is just expecting her to kind of pick up on some of these, these things that she's not. Of course, all of the Mrs. Danvers things and how she doesn't know how to order around servants, which is really her job now, <laughs> is huge. Um, but yeah, I kept thinking more and more about the class piece and maybe too with another character, the character Frank Crawley, who is kind of more in between where the second the second Mrs. De Winter is and Maxim, like he's part of this world, but he's not an aristocrat himself. Um, yeah, I was paying attention to kind of all of those, those pieces. I also really thought a lot about like Beatrice and her role as growing up in Manderley and like knowing and loving this estate and then being, because she's a woman, like having to find her way elsewhere. There's so much interesting class stuff that I focused in on this time. I think that we'll probably touch on it more as we talk about the book. Um, so I don't know how far I want to deep dive into it immediately, but I, yeah, that's really interesting that we both had that framing and experience. And I don't know, maybe it's just like class is something that we're thinking about more and more. I don't know, just in general, there are so many contemporary novels who are exploring class. Um, and so maybe it's just kind of in that literary landscape that we're studying all the time. It must be. So, so interesting. Well, let's talk a bit about some of the other classics that this book builds on and then we can from there dive into different ways to read the text. So we already offhand mentioned that this is somewhat of a reworking of, of Jane Eyre. Is that important to you as a reader when you pick up Rebecca or when you read it this time? When I read it this time, it was important to me because we're studying modernism and postmodernism. And um, in our class, we talk about how Daphne du Maurier kind of wrote across both literary periods. And intertextuality is a really big part of the postmodern artist's way, kind of building on texts of the past. So it was definitely on my mind more in keeping with the conversations we've had about those time periods. And just because we've read Jane Eyre for the podcast, I was curious because we like to put books in conversation with each other. Um, some of the books that I was reading intentionally to preview and see if they would be pairings for this very much felt like Jane Eyre-esque books. Um, but the more that I was reading about Rebecca in relation to Jane Eyre, the more that I noticed Rebecca is maybe less 
related to Jane Eyre and more that they both come from the same primordial text, which is mm. the Bluebeard's fairy tale. It's a Bluebeard gothic is how you can describe both of these. So I don't know. You love Jane Eyre, Sarah. So does it feel important to you to put Rebecca in conversation? Yes. Yes. But I think maybe not until we get into more spoilery territory, like the secrets mm. that both of these men are are harboring. So we can talk about maybe them more comparing and contrasting as we get into that reveal. I do think, I mean, maybe we could touch on some of the similarities and this can also serve as a bit of a plot primer for any listeners who haven't read Rebecca. But in... Right, Jane Eyre, we have a poor governess who gets hired at an estate, falls in love with the uh, owner of the big house. He has secrets that get in the way of them and being happy. And then spoilers abound. <laughs> in Rebecca, we have a young woman who's serving as a companion. That's her job. She's paid to go around Europe with this uh brusque, wealthy American woman. And she meets Maxim de Winter, a recently widowed, very wealthy owner of Manderley. When they're both vacationing in Monte Carlo, they have a whirlwind romance. They get married right away. He whisks her off to his, his estate. And then she spends much of the book worrying that she's not living up to his wife, former wife, Rebecca, She's tortured, <laughs> psychologically tortured by Mrs. Danvers, the like, head of the household, um, the head of the household staff. And then secrets keep them from being happily married until the secrets come out. So I, I think that the way, like you said, the the primordial text, I love the, that phrase, of Bluebeard's Castle where where we have a young bride who's exploring the house because she thinks that her husband has secrets and he does. He has like the dead bodies of his previous wives in a locked room. I think that like the the setting of the house and what people keep locked and the way secrets prevent um prevent a happy union, but also get uh, kind of make the less powerful party feel rattled and uncertain of their own position and identity is just a really interesting read. So yeah, I mean, I, I don't think that you need to put it in conversation with Jane Eyre to love it. But I think if those are the aspects that you enjoy, it's interesting to think about how these three texts are doing them similarly and differently. I think kind of the underlying interesting part of those texts to me is we read a book by Jane Austen, right? And marriage is the ultimate security. And that's the happy ending of the book. And you just feel like, okay, well, they're settled. Their family is safe. They're going to have money. They don't have to turn to the streets. <laughs> and it's happy. And the end. These texts start after the marriage, and the bulk of the book is exploring 
that women are not safe after marriage. Like that security is not there. Um, in I think in the beginning of Rebecca, we get in these Monte Carlo scenes, it's like you're rooting for her to tear away from this ridiculous woman that she's a companion to and go off with Maxim because it's romantic and adventurous, right? And then, and she's so excited to go to Manderley and to finally have a home. And then she gets there and shit hits the fan and she's not secure. She's, it's not a happy ending. Um, instead, it is the start of a lot of conflict. And so I find that framing um, of the insecurity, the precarious position of women within the marriage and that power structure really interesting. It's so interesting. And it's particularly interesting, and this is not a spoiler because this book opens with, in the future, still the it, it still holds on to some of those traditions because they still end up in the marriage right it's not like because there i mean what was the other the other option so i think it's very interesting that these texts like wrestle with that idea they butt up against it but they're not necessarily so radical that they're doing something completely different. Whereas I, a different text, but still in this conversation that is doing something I think radically different is something like Wuthering Heights, where the like the, the marriage is just so much the downfall of, of all of these characters. But yeah, I, I, I mean, we're getting into some different ways to read this just by having this conversation. So we talk a bit about um, we talk a bit we talk a lot about literary lenses over in our Patreon Classics Club. This is just different. These are different ways to closely examine or critically think about a text, and it's kind of like putting putting a different framework on your reading experience to notice different elements. So, what what's one way? you have enjoyed reading Rebecca. All right. Well, let's talk about psychoanalytic lens, Sarah, because the modernists were very obsessed with Freud. And I feel like you can really see that in Rebecca. <laughs> there's so there's so many passages where the narrator, Mrs. DeWinter, is talking about how she wants to be sister, mother, and lover to Maxim. And how he's like her father and brother and husband. And lots of passages where she wants to mother him. And on the one hand, it's like, well, that kind of contributes to like the creepy, incesty feel of these gothics. But on the other hand, I'm like, well, that's just got Freud written all over it. Like Daphne du Maurier was clearly reading some articles. <laughs> yeah. And both of these characters have lost their parents. And so, and I mean, Rebecca was certainly not going to mother Maxim. She was a very, had a very different <laughs> view of what she wanted from marriage. So yeah, I think very obviously steeped in Freud and, and an understanding of, of his, his work. Like you said, it, that does that like 
the incest piece goes back to classic Gothic novels. We think of this as the classic Gothic novel, but it's really working in a tradition of pulpier books. Um, I, I think that element is so interesting. And there's all of these mentions of um, his secret self and my secret mm-hmm. self and ours. And, and that is such a modern perspective and Freudian perspective that there's the self that you present to the world and the interior secret self that you maybe preserve for nobody or for just your most intimate, uh, intimate relationships and see that like understanding that somebody could be putting a front on for identity, self-identity preservation, I think is very new at this time and certainly something she's tapping into. Yeah. There's a lot of commentary from the narrator about performance Mm -hmm. and like watching everything play out as if it were a play and kind of guessing what's going to happen next in the scene and kind of like observing from outside of herself what's happening. And that does very much feel like a more a more modern way to to view and to narrate. And then with psychoanalytic theory, you can always explore the idea that the house itself is symbolic of the mind. And so what, you know, what does it mean that um that these the wing where Maxim had lived with Rebecca has been closed off and all of the furniture has been draped over and nobody goes there anymore and they move to another wing and Mrs. Danvers is the one who's poking and prodding the second Mrs. DeWinter asking like if you want to see the wing I will just I'm happy to show you I'm happy to get it ready for you like like people still live there um I love I love that sort of allegory or just you know and and it's not like you have to think about the house in that way to get at the same themes, but it's just a fun little layer to what she's doing with the the closed off wings and maybe the repressed parts of um, of somebody's memory <laughs> or what they're trying to repress but can't. Yeah, this is kind of maybe getting a little bit more into feminist lens, but branching off of that, I love the lush descriptions of the flowers and the foliage around Manderley. And if you're paying really close attention, you'll notice some of the really wild bushes and um, floral things that are growing there that have just like crawled all over the place and gone bananas and aren't being clipped back and aren't like tidy were planted by Rebecca. Mm -hmm. And so there's like this sense of a wild woman or an untamed, very like free sexual woman in this house versus our unnamed narrator who is then like walking around admiring the flowers and like loves walking around the gardens and like wants to be a part of it wants to wants to garden at Manderley and wants to like participate but doesn't quite know how. And so I think the contrast between the two 
women is set up in a really interesting way with the house and the foliage. Mm-hmm. I love this is the other one of the other ways I like thinking about this in in context with Jane Eyre is with this feminist psychoanalytic. You could bring Marxist in here to read mm-hmm. where, you know, maybe there's a bit of an exploration of not even these two women pitted against each other, but how how would you read the novel if you're thinking about them as two parts of of the feminine consciousness, right? The like the the desire to be free and unrestrained and sexual and sensual and the desire to be safe and protected and approved of. And, you know, Rebecca is not necessarily the second Mrs. DeWinter's doppelganger in the traditional sense, like they look this, but there are moments where she is. And it's almost like this, this fear, not, not necessarily of, um, Maxim still loving Rebecca rather than our narrator, but maybe the narrator's fear of what she could become, what she could slide into if she let herself, if she felt that same lack of restraint. I have so much more to say about our narrator and Rebecca, but I kind of want to save it for spoiler talk. Yeah. I think that it'll get into spoiler territory. So let's touch on. Mrs. Danvers. Before we get to kind of the spoilery, talk about the ending, dish about all that good stuff, because this book is like the creepiness factor really hinges on this creepy housekeeper. And I'm trying to think, I don't think Mrs. Danvers is the, she's certainly not the first creepy housekeeper. That's like a very gothic pulpy thing to have, but she feels like the most iconic one for readers to me, I think. Oh, yeah. I think so, too. I mean, I can't name another one. Like, no. I know they exist, but (laughs) yeah. I mean, even the first description of her as like skeletal is so, so creepy. And just the way that the narrator thinks that Mrs. Danvers understands her, like that Mrs. Danvers is the one person who can see all of her anxieties, what her real fears are, the fact that she doesn't belong and and feels a complete lack of confidence. Mrs. Danvers sees all of that and uses it against her, which is what makes her such a great villain. It's that, and especially for a suspenseful domestic thriller because once again it's not really that like the narrator is really her own worst enemy is the narrator's own insecurities that drive the fear and drive the plot but mrs danvers is the vehicle for bringing those out all the more and she does it in ways that begin subtly <laughs> and grow and grow in intensity and it's scary Yeah, there's always the fear that she's going to do something Mm -hmm. to the narrator. And she has so much power in the house. Mm -hmm. Why is she still there? (laughs) Well, I mean, we kind of know why she's still there. It kind of gets maybe into some spoilery 
territory, but it does seem like Maxim should have just given her the boot. <laughs> yeah. Hired somebody new. So a really common reading of Rebecca is that Mrs. Danvers was in love with Rebecca and that this like underlying queerness is a big part of why she's like keeping the rooms for her and really attached to Rebecca's things, her hairbrushes, her pearls, her stuff. Um, And I think this really comes across in the scene where Mrs. Danvers has the narrator in the room and is like, let me show you all of this stuff. And I used to, you know, touch her hair and I used to like help her get dressed and all of these things. Um, And I think that's a really common reading to the point where Alfred Hitchcock really imbues his 1940 film version with that specific reading. Um, I find it fascinating. Like it's really common reading. I was doing some investigating and there are some scholarly suggestions that Daphne du Maurier was bisexual and like really repressed and described it as like her boy in the box and like was very homophobic and um like really harsh on herself for these feelings. I think that's really fascinating that then it comes out in this text in such a way. So um Sarah, what do you have to add or what do you make of this conversation in this reading of Mrs. Danvers? I think it's a fascinating reading. I I did not know that about Daphne du Maurier and that's really interesting. I want to dig deeper into that in some of my own reading as well. I mean, I think it ties back to what you've talked about with Freud already and kind of the the different ways that maybe sexuality was being viewed or discussed at this time that like having sexual urges um, beyond just like in a heterosexual marriage was something that was being discussed more, not in a like, not in a tolerant or accepting way, but just in a more open way that it was something that, that happened. Um, and because I, I, I think that Mrs. Danvers is also a motherly figure for Rebecca. She has been with Rebecca since Rebecca was a child, but I don't think those two things negate each other. I think that tied within the framework of this book and the framework of um, conversations about psychology and sexuality was this feeling that you could desire to mother and and be mother and lover (laughs) to somebody else. And I see that in Mrs. Danvers. I mean, and, and the type of like nurturing of Rebecca she does is very kind of classic bad mother. Like she doesn't rein her in, in any way, right? She, she encourages her, um, she encourages Rebecca's desires and flights of fancy and, and holds her up on a, thinks that the world kind of should accommodate Rebecca. Um, and I, I think it makes, I think a, attraction, a romantic love makes a lot of sense in where the narrative goes. And so I I think that reading is readily available to us in the text. 
there's a rich history of queerness in Gothic literature as well. And so it absolutely fits within the the form and the genre here. In addition to that, there's just um, like there's a precedent for it. Um, but it's it's just a it's a very common reading that I think today no one would blink an eye at. It's just like kind of a given that like oh yeah that's that's where it comes from for Mrs. Danvers. But I find it a little bit problematic that she's so creepy and villainized. Sure, and I mean I I think though and that. Like, there are so many avenues for this. Like, I even find a bit that, like, the second Mrs. De Winter has an attraction to Rebecca. That sort of, like, yeah. that double attraction of I want to be her and be near her. And so I... I I mean, and I don't think that that desire is encouraged within the morality of the text either. Um, but I, you know, I do think, and maybe we should get into spoilers now too, like Rebecca is such a fascinating character because, well, let's let's say spoilers now. So. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, let's go there. It's time. Yeah. It's time. Looking at looking at our recording time. It's time for spoilers. Yeah. Is she a I is she the villain of the text? Or do we from our modern angle read her as like a woman, a liberated woman ahead of her time, you know, brought down by the constraints of femininity in the novel? I think you could read it either way. One reading is more accessible to us because of the narrator. So we, the title of the book is Rebecca, but we never get an omniscient narrator talking about Rebecca. We only get to see Rebecca and get to know her through the unnamed narrator picking up clues about her from Mrs. Danvers talking about her and like the people in the community talking about her and they all have such praise for how beautiful she was and how well she ran Manderly and just like she was the perfect socialite, right? And we get a little bit towards the end of the book from Maxim, but is he reliable when he's talking about Rebecca? He exhibits some abusive tendencies toward the unnamed narrator and here's where the big spoiler comes in. He is the one who killed Rebecca. I, okay, I just, before we even get into like thematic readings of that, which is I know how, how we started this conversation, but I mean, it is like kind of brilliant writing to like the first time I read this and I found out that Maxim killed Rebecca, that your first, maybe, maybe my first feeling was like, oh good, <laughs> he doesn't still love her. He's like, he's, he loves our narrator and that's how she feels, right? Yeah. Like relief is what relief. she feels. Yes. And when it's like, girl, you should be scared, <laughs> run away. I know. And I think of course on like subsequent readings or even just thinking about it, that is, but, but that doesn't negate the relief. I feel like still every time I, I read it, there's a bit of that. That's like, okay, she can. She can relax about this, like, Rebecca comparison now. Um, so just 
fantastic writing to be able to pull that pull that off i think on so many on so many levels but yeah i mean i i think we don't get a clear picture of of rebecca i believe that she was partying in the boathouse like mrs danvers doesn't really have reason <laughs> to lie about that and she's the one who you know says like she was having affairs down there and she was like having fun and hosting people and doing what she wanted and then going to London and having fun. And Maxim is like, it was fine when she was doing that in London and like kept it away from her house. But then she was bringing it closer and closer and closer. And then he wasn't okay with it. Right. And I think that's where we can get into the question of, I mean, I, I do think that, that the book and probably Daphne du Maurier want us to view what Rebecca was doing as unethical. Not necessarily that she deserved to die, but that our narrator gets to be sort of the moral heroine of the story, even, even if she isn't, isn't the picture of a heroine. Um, but, I mean, I think the further we get away from the moral constraints in which the text was written, the more we can ask well, men did that all the time. Like men of Maxim's class would have been like completely expected to have mistresses and and lives outside of the home and bring who they wanted home and and all of that. So I I think we get to now kind of ask the question like, well, like even if we're not maybe thinking of things as right or wrong, like maybe Rebecca isn't the villain that. Maxim portrays her as. Yeah. And her contrast with the narrator's like innocence and youth and purity. Um, Well, that's why I like to think too of this as a doppelganger situation of like really an exploration of like two quote unquote sides of femininity. And I know all of this is like very heteronormative and problematic. And, you know, there's much more nuance to be had in this kind of conversation. But I, I think gothic, all gothic stories often rely on ideas of uncanniness and doubling and repression. And I think it's fascinating to think about the narrator as somebody who has like repressed sexuality and sexual desires and in order to navigate the world safely from the class space she occupied. And so that is the the scary part of Rebecca is not that she dominates Maxim's mind, but that like that's something the narrator doesn't want to think about within herself because that is something so absent from their relationship sex. Like they're just like they meet in Monte Carlo, we know they're married. She doesn't say anything about their like sexual dynamics, except that sometimes he like kind of kisses her on the forehead and treats her like he treats his dog with a little pat on the head. And I mean, doesn't seem particularly sexy. And so I think even though that's not the part that's said out loud, the fear that Max and Rebecca had this sexual passion that she doesn't feel like they have and that she maybe is afraid of within herself is a really fascinating read of this. Until 
when she discovers that Rebecca is dead and that Maxim is the one who killed her, all of a sudden they're making out (laughs) in the drawing room. Right. And it's like the fire was lit and all of a sudden she's like, she feels free to release that part of herself and to step into the role of Rebecca because she's not hanging out there anymore. It wasn't enough for her to be dead. Maxim had to have killed her. (laughs) He... Because he can't be in love with her anymore. He can't be obsessed with her anymore. And that I find very interesting. Um, But that brings me to a question that I really want to talk about before we get into pairings. We did a whole episode on Patreon about unreliable narrators because we were inspired by this book. And I think that there's maybe an idea that The narrator of Rebecca is unreliable because she's super young and innocent and naive and because she doesn't know what's going on and because Maxim is kind of like overpowering her. But the book is framed in such a way. She's narrating this. The book opens and she's older. Years have passed. She and Maxim are living somewhere else and she's looking back on what happened. So is the unnamed narrator unreliable because she is casting herself in a certain role and trying to like articulate her story in a certain way or because she's innocent and naive. I just, on this reading, I did not find her very innocent and naive the way that I have in other readings. All right, tell me more about that. So first of all, she's super observant. And a lot of this comes from she's the companion to this American who is in socialite circles and always is extremely effusive and to the point embarrassing, but she's always like in these very wealthy environments and she's making all of these observations, right? So I have a hard time believing that she wouldn't know how to act like completely and totally because she's been in those environments. The way that she observes the scenes that are happening before her and she like anticipates what's going to happen or Um, the way that she describes certain people, she's extremely observant and like figures this stuff out. I, I just had a harder time believing like, oh, she's just innocent and naive and a poor little girl who's like gone to this big house and totally out of her depth. She just seemed smarter than that to me. And granted, I know a lot of this is, this is told in hindsight, but it just seemed like some of the innocence and the way that even the way that she woos Maxim in the beginning, like, I don't know. There's, there's not, maybe there's not necessarily the one power dynamic at play. I know he's a lot older and he's the one with the money and he's like taking her out, but maybe she is playing a little bit of a role to get to Manderley to like get out of this situation and who could blame her. But that role seems to continue. And I just don't know if I believed that she was this, like, delicate little flower. Yeah, I I think I fall somewhere in the middle in my reading. I don't think she's completely naive and unaware of what she's doing. I I do think that she recognizes the limitations that her situation puts her in, in terms of her class and her gender. Um, and her lack of family, which is, I think the main, one of the main reasons that 
she's so attractive to Maxim is that he doesn't have to deal with anybody, a father or anybody asking questions or anything like that. She becomes like entirely subsumed by his his world. I do think that she has this sort of um, this way of viewing herself even in the present moment. Yes, we're we're being told the story looking back, but it's like she's constantly thinking about how people are perceiving her. And that is both a source of resourcefulness and a limitation for her. So I think sometimes she can use like the way people perceive her to navigate a situation smoothly and even acquire what she wants. Sometimes her overthinking about the way people perceive her becomes that not not necessarily naive, but that limiting factor in what she is able to do or say in a particular moment. So I do think that she's playing a little bit of a role. And I, I think that sometimes playing that role actually inhibits her from making the smarter decisions in a moment. And it does seem like the power dynamic has flipped a little bit. So it's kind of like at the end of Jane Eyre, spoiler alert, but we did a whole episode on it. <laughs> um, Rochester is blinded and and burned and really like brought down several levels, which means that Jane is then that power dynamic is different. He's not like above her with her as the governess. It's flipped. It feels like the same thing happens at the end of Rebecca, where Maxim is accused of murder. Like they're cast out from their home. Manderley burns. He doesn't have the estate and the power that he once did. And so our narrator is then like, it's the equalizer at the Mm -hmm. end. And she's got a little bit of this power and leverage over him because she could. I mean, she could go and turn him into the authorities and be like, guess what? He confessed to me. (laughs) Um, And so there is just like this shift in power dynamic. So another one of my questions is, why did Maxim marry her? Is it that like, is there a protection that she offered of having this young, innocent wife, like with him knowing and kind of anticipating like, stuff is going to come out eventually and it protects me to have have her around um was he just lonely like he could just have spent time in manderley alone why marry her i think in part he was hoping that like starting fresh would help him continue to bury those rebecca memories and get to think of himself in a different role. Like if he is the savior of this young woman, then he gets to cancel out being the murderer of Rebecca. Um, I think it's part about like his ego, his his self-preservation in that sense. But I I would imagine there's a practical component too. I, I like what you said about having her around as a sort of a buffer protective element. I I don't find Maxim to be like a very interesting character, but I do like that this book offers us a lot of characters that we can investigate further because 
we are getting that limited point of view. We uh, we get to meet some interesting people. Like you said, the sister is fascinating to me. Um, and I think that that's part of what makes this a really good book for film adaptation. Um, we're going to watch the 1940 version and record a bonus episode about it. We already have an episode about the most recent version, which, <laughs> spoiler, we did not like. <laughs> um, but I love the 1940 Alfred Hitchcock one. Like Hitchcock, there's there's no better director for this for this book. Um, so stay tuned for that. And Sarah, we have pairings to get to. We haven't done pairings in a while. I know. Was it difficult for you to find pairings or to winnow down pairings? <laughs> Way harder to narrow it down. Yeah. There's so many good gothic books out now. And it's just the kind of, it's just the kind of, uh, I don't know, gothic isn't really a, a genre. It's it's not going to go anywhere. It's mm-hmm. been popular for centuries and it's going to stay popular. Mm-hmm. So yeah, there was a lot. So Sarah, I'm really excited to hear what you want to pair with Rebecca. Okay. My first pairing because I was thinking, I was thinking like, what makes this unnamed narrator work? What makes this a classic of suspense? And like I said, I settled on in part, it is in some way symbolic or allegorical for, or or at least relatable <laughs> in a way that many suspense or thrillers are not. And for that reason, I have to pair this with Gone Girl by... Jillian Flynn. I mean, I think if you haven't read Gone Girl, I'm not going to say much about this book because I don't want to spoil it, but there are so many like roots of Rebecca, the character, and the second Mrs. DeWinter, the character, in Gone Girl. And Gone Girl also is exploring that sort of doppelganger idea, the like repressed self versus the ego who you think you ought to be. Um, It's exploring the idea of like a bifurcated identity um, of like, like who, who people want you to be versus who maybe, maybe you are. And it also is exploring power dynamics in gendered relationships. So if you haven't read Gone Girl, it is about a woman named Amy. She goes missing and her husband is acting extremely suspicious. And I, and then we get diary entries from Amy's point of view to see like kind of what, what happened in the lead up to her disappearance while her husband whose name is not Ben, but is played by Ben Affleck in the movie. So now I can only think of him as Ben, um, is like scrambling to be perceived as innocent. I reread Gone Girl this week, Chelsea. It's so good. (laughs) Okay. I was wondering if you were going to reread it. I couldn't get Gone Girl out of my head reading Rebecca either. And Uh I think- Maybe it's partly because we brought it up in the Unreliable Narrator episode and kind of like had placed it in conversation already. But I kept thinking about the cool girl passage yes. and 
when I was thinking about the narrator of Rebecca and this question of like, why is she unreliable? I was like this, the setup and the structure, which I think Du Maurier does gene in such a genius way speaks to the genius of Gillian Flynn as well. Mm -hmm. It's, it's so good. If you haven't read it, or maybe you just haven't read it in a while and you're like, oh, I mean, I know the twist. I know the twist or like, I can see what's coming. And so it's, that's, that is part of the joy of reading Gone Girl for the first time. But much like Rebecca, it is very worth a reread once you know where the story is going. So you can pick up on some minor details, but also so you can think about it more as um, what it's doing thematically, symbolically. There's so much to Gone Girl. I had so much fun rereading it. I would love 30, 40, 50 years from now for Gone Girl to be considered a classic the same way Rebecca is in that pulpy popular fiction kind of way. Yeah, I think it will be. I right. I do wish that, it, I mean, and maybe this is similar to Rebecca, like <clears throat> I feel like because it inspired so many girl suspense novels that now maybe it gets a little diminished too, or at least is just like seen as the best of that genre rather than like a classic or doing something connected to older texts, but it really is very steeped in some of the classic literature that we're talking about, especially, obviously, Rebecca. And I do think like, like to me, The Girl on the Train, which we also talked about in a recent bonus episode, like it's not saying anything complex about what it means to be a woman navigating ideas of womanhood. <laughs> maybe maybe it does to some readers. Maybe I'm diminishing it. But Gone Girl does in the package of a just fantastic thriller. So go reread Gone Girl, everyone. All right, Sarah. Uh, my pairing is a little bit more magical. I hate to say magical because it's dark, like dark fantasy kind of vibes here. But it is a gothic from Alex E. Harrow. Really like Alex E. Harrow as an author. And it is Starling House. This is her book that's out this fall. Um, It comes out October 3rd. So place your library holds. The cover is fantastic. This book is set in Kentucky in a really, really small mining town. And the main character, Opal, she's just like down on her luck. Her mother has died. She's taking care of her younger brother and they live in a dingy motel room on the outskirts of town. And it just feels to her like she's never going to get out of their situation. She needs money. And so one day she's walking by the Starling house. And this is a huge mansion in the town. Everybody stays away from it. Super creepy. And there is an author and illustrator who used to live there and was a recluse. Um, She wrote The Underland, which is like this fantastical children's novel that's super dark and creepy. And um, Arthur Starling is the heir to this house, even though this house is like passed down to caretakers, not by blood. Um, So it's like someone new dreams about the house and then comes to the house and inherits it. So Opal is walking up to this house and she just like 
goes out and touches the gate and it slices her hand and her blood is on the gate. And from there, she's connected to this house. And Arthur kind of feels that sense that the house is like pulling her in. And even though he knows it's a bad idea, he invites her to be the housekeeper. So she goes and she's cleaning this house. Um, This has an epigraph from Wuthering Heights. So it definitely has those like Wuthering Heights Gothic vibes. I think you can draw a lot of comparisons there. Arthur is in Opal's phone as Heathcliff. Um, But the reason that I think this pairs really well with Rebecca um, is first of all, the dreams, which we didn't really get to talk about dreams and the role that they play in Rebecca. We definitely could have talked about that with the psychoanalytic lens, but dreams are a really important part of Starling House and the way that people inhabit the house and come to the house. Um, so the dreams are really important. And the book even opens with a line that sounds very similar to the famous I dreamt of Manderley line. But also, this is a story that's really about class and this small town and buried secrets, not just from this house, but from the town itself and how revealing those secrets like shifts entire social dynamics, which I find to be one of the more underrated parts of Rebecca. So I don't want to say too much more about this book because it is mysterious. It's got great impeccable gothic vibes and um just like with with the iconic house and with the dreams and the class situation it makes for a really great pairing for Rebecca but it's not so similar that you wouldn't want to read them back to back you know like i some people can't get enough gothic literature in the fall some people are like well i read my like one book and i'm good This one I think is different enough that you could read them back to back, get a lot out of it. Um, And it's, it's just a perfect fall read. So that's Starling House by Alex E. Harrow. All right. I'm really excited to read that one. Um, I, oh man, I don't know where I want to go, Chelsea. I still haven't like narrowed all of mine down. Um, maybe we'll see if we can fit in an extra if we talk quickly. Okay. So I do want to, uh, recommend, um, as a pairing, The Hacienda by Isabella Canis. Um, I, um, you recommended this to me, Chelsea. You, we were talking about like, oh my gosh, what are we going to pair with Rebecca? And you said, uh, we were walking through a bookstore together (laughs) and we saw, uh, vampires of El Norte on the shelf. And you said, oh, she also wrote the Hacienda, which is described as Rebecca meets Mexican Gothic. And so I downloaded it on audio from Libby and it is Rebecca meets Mexican Gothic. (laughs) Um, it is, if you are looking for not a Rebecca retelling, but just like a pretty like straight up, like I like, like the trope of a wife in a creepy house wondering what the heck is going on with her husband and his family, then this is straight up that kind of book. What set it apart for me was a couple of things. Number one, I really like the narrator. Actually, her name is Beatrice, so I don't know if that's taken from Rebecca. 
Um, but if you struggle with the narrator of Rebecca because you're like, why doesn't she just say something? Or why doesn't she trust herself? Like, this is a much more um, modern heroine in that sense where she isn't a wallflower. She isn't like a shrinking violet sort of narrator. She um, she speaks her mind. She tr- she believes that what she's saying is really happening. And so some of those like tropes are, are done in a different way. I also really liked the setting. This is set during the Mexican Revolution and the p- politics are very important to the story and are not something I know a ton about. And so I really enjoyed not feeling like the author was pandering to me. Like she she worked in the historical stuff in a really brilliant way where I found myself doing some like extra research and Googling and enjoying learning that without feeling like she was having to like bend over backwards to explain things to me. Um, I really like that. And then third, this book really has some of the traditional gothicness in its like portrayal of Catholicism. And a lot of gothic novels were written by British authors, but set on the European continent where the Catholics live. And like there was this just like very extreme distancing of like, you know, the, um, the, the sort of I, I don't even know kind of how it would be described, but the like iconography and and things like that that go along with more traditional Catholicism versus the pared down Church of England um, Christianity. And so I really like the leaning into like one of the main characters of the Hacienda is a priest. Um, and that uh, that faith and spirituality element is fascinating. This book does veer into horror and not to get like spoilery, but if you're looking for like a straight psychological Gothic novel like Rebecca, this is not that there are like, there are things happening, but I really enjoyed this. And I think it could be a good read for October. If you're looking for something a little scary, so it's the Hacienda. I think that's part of what was so hard with the pairings for Rebecca because Rebecca can really, like you can pull from horror, Mm -hmm. you can pull from suspense and thriller, you can pull from mystery, you can pull from just like gothic romance. So there's just, there are a lot of shades of gothic and layers here that you can, I don't know, too many avenues. Totally. But I'm going the mystery route for my next pairing next recommendation. The Curse of Penrith Hall by Jess Armstrong. This isn't out until December, so I'm sorry that I'm recommending it in advance, but also you're welcome because you have something to look forward to. (laughs) Um, But The Curse of Penrith Hall by Jess Armstrong. Lots of reasons why this pairs well with Rebecca. It's a gothic mystery. It's set on the Cornish countryside. So lots of like really beautiful countryside descriptions. And we have a creepy house. So the way that this is different is it's not narrated from the point of view of the wife in the house, but the best friend of the wife in the house. So Ruby Vaughn, she's an American heiress living in Britain. 
and this is post-World War I, so firmly planted in the modernist period. And I found a lot of the historical detail and a lot of the commentary on World War I to just fit really well, not only with Rebecca, but with this like historical context that we've been talking about in our community. So Ruby works at a rare bookstore with her octogenarian employer and housemate. Um, and he serves as like a father figure for her because she has lost her family. Um, and so he tells her, I want you to deliver this box of rare books to a folk healer in the Cornish countryside, and you have to go to this little town. Well, this little town is right by Penrith Hall, where her best friend and former lover, Tamsin, lives. So I also like that there is this little queer element that relates really beautifully to Rebecca, but it's not it's not used in as creepy of a in in this creepy way it's like more of a a rich backstory for the two female characters um so tamsin ruby's best friend former love has married sir edward chenoweth and is the lady of penrith hall now so ruby goes there and She's just like uncomfortable. Edward is an ass and she's worried about Tamsin being abused and she just doesn't like it there, but she stays the night and overnight she has a really bad dream and then she wakes up to the bells ringing and Edward is dead and he's found like split open in the woods. And the folk healer that she brought the books to comes up. He's known as the Peller, which is kind of like this witchy, like Cornish countryside kind of thing. Um, he comes up and he's like, it's the curse. It's the curse. It's back. Um, and this whole community is like obsessed with this curse of Penrith Hall. So Ruby with her like American sensibilities is like, there's no curse guys. There's gotta be a reason behind this. And so she sticks around partly for Tamsin because Tamsin wants her protection and wants her to help, but also because she's just determined to find the real reason that this happened. So we have like the creepy house, this slightly abusive husband, but he's the one who dies and there's a mystery around what happened. So I really like this as a Rebecca pairing, but just also a really good fall read. It is The Curse of Penrith Hall by Jess Armstrong and it's out in December. That sounds fun. I, um, I think I might add that. Did you listen or did you read it on the page? Um, I read it. I had a copy from NetGalley. I think it probably would be a good listen. And I was thinking as I was reading it, I was like, this might be a mystery that Sarah would actually like because, <laughs> because it isn't, there's so much like background and it's, it, there is a mystery to it, but it's not a puzzle kind of mystery. Mm -hmm. Like I didn't feel like I was trying to figure it out the whole time. I was just happy to be swept along as the characters were figuring it out. Okay. Okay. Yeah. I find that, and I felt a little bit of this with the Hacienda, but I liked the setting so much that I felt not entirely this way. If I'm like, I could be just as satisfied Googling and finding out the answer to this. <laughs> <laughs> then it's not going to work for me. So I, I like that, um, that caveat. All right. My final pairing, although I'm going to throw one out here at, at the end because I have to, is Land of Milk and Honey by C. Pam Jang. 
And we paired how much of these hills is gold in a previous episode. And I think we both really like her writing. This book is so different from um, from her first. And I have seen it described as an eco-gothic, which is cool. So it is about a unnamed young chef who lives in a near future where this smog has settled over the earth. And not only does it significantly decrease quality of life for everybody on the planet, but as a chef, like all of these ingredients, she no longer has access to, or maybe has never been able to work with different meats, different herbs, um, different fruits and vegetables. And then she is hired to be the private chef at this like hidden um, sanctuary that a billionaire has created for, for himself and some of his closest powerful friends. And he kind of says that they are working on a way to like solve the smog, but also it's this um, very sensually indulgent place for the people who who live there. Um, she's able to work with all of these rare ingredients that she's never seen before. And she gets swept up by her employer and his, who's just called her, um, the, her employer throughout and his daughter, um, who is this very charismatic young, young woman. Um, the, the employer's wife and the mother of, of the daughter, um, is, is missing. And it seems like perhaps they want this young chef to be sort of a stand in for this mother figure and things just get very weird and creepy. There's so much Rebecca in this book. I would I would be very curious to see if she was inspired at all by Rebecca, even though it's like a totally different, different book. Um, in terms of content warnings, like lots of, lots of animal stuff that maybe some people won't want to read about and very graphically depicted sex on the page. I listened to this and the narrator was so self-doubting that it really reminded me of the narrator of Rebecca. And at first that kind of like grated on me. And then I just felt more and more like it worked. Um, but if that might kind of bother your reading experience, I think pick this one up in the, on the page. It's out. Um, it's out today, September 26th, when this episode will drop. I was not expecting that as a pairing. It, I really want you to read it with this in mind because I, I read it without thinking about it. And then when I started rereading Rebecca, I was like, oh my gosh, this is perfect. So yeah, it wasn't on my list, but I'll, I'll see if my library will be getting it in soon. Sarah, I have a recommendation. I really want you to read because this is a creepy, weird, really weird novella. And I know you're liking short mm-hmm. literary reads. I feel like this one is like right in the sweet spot for that. 
It is Comfort Me with Apples by Catherine M. Valente. Have you read this one? Yeah, I read this. Okay, perfect. <laughs> I, if you hadn't, I was going to be like, you need to read it because it just takes like an afternoon. Mm-hmm. And this is one I was looking at lists of Bluebeard retellings because I was kind of going down the rabbit hole of Bluebeard and that fairy tale. And this one came up and I was like, okay, well, it's super short. I'll just listen to it and see. And I mean, it's not like a direct Rebecca retelling by any means, but it does have that common thread of the Bluebeard retelling, and it's just so short, and it's literary, and I just feel like people would really enjoy it as a fall read. So this is about Sophia, um, and she has the perfect life and the perfect husband and the perfect community called Arcadia Gardens. And you get kind of like these HOA snippets um, throughout the novella of like what's allowed in Arcadia Gardens and what isn't. But she, he like works all the time and she's getting kind of bored and she finds a hairbrush with a hair on it that is not hers. And I honestly, like there's not, there's nothing more I can say because I already said so it's a Bluebeard yeah, yeah. book. It's so short and I don't want to spoil anything more. And it's really weird. And it gets into some of the same kind of like themes and conversations as Rebecca and a lot of these gothics. But it's also totally different. It's a little bit more sci-fi-y and like fantasy. But oh gosh, I there's not much more that I can say without really spoiling it. So this is kind of like a just trust me recommendation. If you want to be really creeped out, you want to have that kind of like, what did I just read experience? It's a really short novella. Um, it is Comfort Me with Apples by Catherine M. Valente. And um, she wrote The Glass Town Games, which is a Bronte mm-hmm, I know. Book. And so I just think like, Maybe there's a little that thread of Bluebeard had to be in there intentionally. Totally. Yeah. She she seems like an author who very much enjoys working within this this tradition and all of these illusions and and callbacks. I'd like to read yeah. more of her her work. How did you come to comfort me with apples? Was it just like on your radar from something? I stumbled across it at a at politics and prose when I was there at one point. I was just looking for yeah, a short book that I could fit in. And I think I read it last fall and like stayed up late reading it. I I think this is a book that is a little bit like twist dependent. And if you like, yeah, if you know, if you, if you see where it's going early, you might feel like part of the pleasure is taken out. But I think, think you can still really and just especially like if a book is going to be kind of twist dependent make it short like don't drag me through 400 pages you know so I I think this is a great pairing and a really enjoyable read because even if you hate it see it like whatever like (laughs) it's It's short and worth reading anyway it's worth reading and a great book to discuss and have an opinion on so totally I I I hope maybe some of our listeners will read it and then maybe we can um, talk about it a little bit too in our in our Patreon Discord. Yeah. I'm just going right. to throw out, okay, one book yeah. that just came out. This is nonfiction. I'm only a third of the way through it. But 
It is Doppelganger by Naomi Klein. And she is the author of um, Shock Doctrine and No Logo and a few other like social commentary uh, or more even economic commentary books. I have not read any of her other books. But when this book came out, I was like, Naomi Klein, isn't she like, hasn't she really like gone off the rails into like problematic views, conspiracy territory? No, that is the other Naomi, another Naomi political commentator. And that's what this book is about, Chelsea, is Naomi Klein reflecting on how it feels to be constantly confused with the other Naomi. But then it goes, gets deeper from there into like doppelgangers in the land of social media and how we all create our own doppelgangers as our social media presences and um, how we have this like in, you know, the, this, these, again, bifurcated identities of what we present and what we're like. And, and when we start getting confused between the presentation and the reality, it's not literary criticism. It's extremely political. If you don't, you know, if you don't agree with Klein's views, you will not like this book. But I just couldn't stop thinking about Rebecca while I've been listening to this and just how like a, you know, a digital doppelganger sort of reality mirrors um, or mirrors what we maybe see at work with Rebecca and the narrator. I love that recommendation. I love when we get to throw in nonfiction. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's rare to be able to. So a little bonus pick. Well, I can't wait, Sarah, to talk with our book club about this. If you're listening to this episode on the day that it comes out on Tuesday, the 26th, we're talking about Rebecca tomorrow. So you can join us at patreon.com slash novel pairings and talk about this incredible book. But there are also lots of other avenues for you to be able to discuss with us. Um, the main way is hop in our comments on Instagram and let us know what you thought of this episode, what you would pair with Rebecca. We cannot wait to hear from you. And in addition to following us on Instagram and sharing our posts and commenting there, some other ways that you can support our independent podcast and our mission to make public scholarship accessible one main way is leaving a review on Apple Podcasts. You can also share our show with a friend or on social media. You can subscribe to our free weekly newsletter at novelpairings.substack.com. And like we said, you can become a member of our Patreon community. We have memberships starting at just $5 where you can access our bonus episodes. Um, you can also consider, if you have the means, to join our Novel Pairings producers and generously fund the show to help keep it ad-free and help us grow our small business. However you support the show, every download, listen, and share contributes to our growing community, and we are so glad you're here. Thank you to Miles Eichner and Mark Anderson for our theme music. We'll be back soon with a short story club episode on The Lottery by Shirley Jackson. Until then, we declare after all, there is no enjoyment like reading. How much sooner one tires of anything than of a book.